So will you please join me in our scripture of the day that is printed in your bulletin. It will also be displayed on your screen if you're worshiping from home with us. Let us say this passage from Luke together. And you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord and prepare the way for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, may all that we do and say in this day be well and good in your sight. Alleluia. Amen. So I have this picture in my mind's eye from the recesses of my brain that recalls snapshots from my childhood. And I can see clearly a drawing from one of my children's Bibles of John the Baptist, a man with wild, scraggly brown hair, a scraggly, unkempt beard, um, <clears throat> wearing a scraggly, hairy tunic with a leather belt around his waist, a staff in his hand, ankle-deep in a river, standing next to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. <laughs> a Jesus that looked more like a descendant from the Vikings rather than a descendant of Middle Eastern Jews. John the Baptist is certainly an interesting character, and one of those who tend to play a prominent role in our children's Sunday school classes, just like it is today in our own kids' classrooms. But our kids will learn only half of John the Baptist's life story as his imprisonment and eventual death by beheading for some reason, never seems to make it into the children's curriculum. <laughs> but actually, I'm not sure I've ever heard a sermon on John's beheading either, so I guess we're in pretty good company with our kids. And I had never really thought about this before, but I wonder if John was quite possibly the very first martyr of our faith. For the most part, we tend to study or consider John the Baptist maybe twice a year. Sometimes during Advent, we may read the biblical story of the pregnant Mary being sent off to spend some time with her cousin Elizabeth, also pregnant with John, Jesus' cousin. And then we may talk about John again when we celebrate Jesus' baptism, but typically, he does not garner much of our time or focus in worship or in Bible studies. Yet, John's significance reaches beyond the time and attention that we usually give him. In my studies this week, it occurred to me that John is one of only three people in all of Scripture whose birth was predicted and announced by God's messengers. Jesus, of course, was one. And the other was Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, the beginning of God's promised descendants to Abraham and the creation of the nation of Israel. Much time and attention is given to John's birth narrative in the Gospel of Luke, the likes of which we only see in the life of Jesus. So clearly, there was something very important about John and his existence and his eventual ministry but honestly, an importance that I'm not so sure we have ever spent much time considering. Modern-day theologian N.T. Wright has a great way of putting John the Baptist into perspective for us, using the scripture from the Gospel of John that we just heard read. And this is what he says. 
I want to make it quite clear that I am not the candidate. We hear that said over and over as politicians jostle for position before a major election. No, they aren't going to stand. No, they have no intention of running for office. No, they are going to sit this one out. And then, surprise, surprise, suddenly they make a speech saying that friends had advised them, that pressure has been put on them, that for the good of the country, they now intend to run after all. And we have become quite cynical about it all. But here we have a story about a man pushing himself forward into the public eye, gaining a large following, and then refusing to claim any of the offices that they were eager to ascribe to him. John, the writer of this particular gospel, assumes that we know a certain amount of the offices or leadership characteristics that many Jews were expecting at the time. The Messiah is what they were expecting, of course, the king from the house of David, the king who would overthrow all injustice and rule over Israel, and perhaps the world too. But John the Baptist denies quite firmly that he is not the Messiah, and he seems to mean it. He isn't doing messianic things. But what about Elijah the prophet? For centuries the Jews have read in the scriptures that the great prophet Elijah would return. Elijah, it seemed, hadn't died in the ordinary way, but had been taken up to heaven directly. Now many believed that he would return to herald God's new day, but John clearly did not want anyone thinking that he was Elijah. And Elijah wasn't the only great prophet. Most in Jesus' day would have ranked him second to Moses himself. In the book of Deuteronomy, God promises to raise up a prophet like Moses to lead the people. This figure, a yet-to-come prophet like Moses, we expected in Jesus' day, though most people didn't distinguish sharply between the different figures they had heard or read about. But they knew enough to know that someone would come, and preferably soon, to sort out the mess that they were in. But John the Baptist, he refused all such titles. A group of priests and Levites, temple functionaries, came to check him out, sent by the Pharisees, who were one of the leading pressure groups of the time. They had their own reasons for wanting to keep tabs on people. If someone was behaving in a strange new way, announcing a message from God, they wanted to know about it. And John was definitely behaving strangely. Israel's scriptures hadn't spoken of a prophet who would come and plunge people into water. What was he doing? John's answer in his gospel, here and in what follows, is that John the Baptist is getting people ready for someone else. The one, he claim, the one claim that he makes, apart from his belief that Israel's God has commanded him to baptize people in water, is that he is merely a voice, or rather, the voice, the voice spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And what the voice commands is to get the road straightened out. The master is coming, so the way must be prepared. John has the task of sounding like an emergency siren, like an ambulance or a fire truck, 
a siren designed to clear a path for the one who's coming behind him. John said he wasn't the light, but he, gave, he came to give evidence about the light. He is of secondary importance to the Messiah, although he comes before him in temporal sequence. The reason he comes before him, of course, is that he had to in order to clear the way ahead. So as one goes through the various stages of development, the act of pointing a finger takes on different meanings. Very small children will point at objects both as a way to convey a want or a desire and as a way to learn as they begin to navigate the world around them. This is their form of communication before words are made available to them. But eventually, there comes a point in childhood where we are taught that it is impolite to point fingers, especially if we are pointing at a stranger or pointing at someone as a means of derision. I would imagine that most of us can recall a time in our life, especially in childhood, where fingers were pointed at us while others snickered and made fun of us. I would even think that we may be able to recall a time where we pointed fingers at others with the sole purpose of wanting to make them feel bad as well. John the Baptist was a finger pointer, yet never with the malice in his heart, but always with the purpose of living out the call on his life to prepare the way for the Lord. Yes, I would imagine in those times when he was calling out the religious elite and bringing them to task, that he may have sounded pretty derogatory in his speech, yet sometimes tough love needed to be handed out. And John was doing just that, as he called the people to repent, to turn away from their sins, to be washed clean in his baptism. Of water. But the best finger pointing that he did was when he was pointing out the Messiah. When Jesus appeared at the River Jordan for his turn to be baptized, then John points a finger right at him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John points a finger, and all eyes turn, and he proclaims Emmanuel. God with us, and the world would never be the same again. John points his finger at Jesus so all eyes will focus on him, and I believe that we are called to do the same. In a world that is searching like mad for peace and harmony and love and hope in all of the wrong places, they need us to be a John the Baptist and point our fingers to help them focus on what really matters, to help them focus on Jesus. There are so many ways in life that we can do that for others, pointing fingers and offering hope. And the sacraments we celebrate as a church community are just a couple of those ways. Every time that we gather at table together and share in the Lord's Supper, we get to point others to Jesus' love by reminding them of his sacrifice. And every time that we gather as a community around the baptismal font, 
We point our fingers towards the one who has washed us all clean and forgiven us of our sins and has marked us as his very own. As Presbyterians, we believe in infant baptism because we believe in the power of community. We believe that being surrounded by a community of faith is necessary to help us grow in our faith as well as navigate life. Jesus believed in community. So it is our job, our responsibility to believe into our children until they are old enough to believe for themselves. Infant baptism is just the start of how we dedicate ourselves and encourage one another to pointing others towards Christ. It should not merely be a box that we check for our child, but a means of true dedication to teaching our children how to love the one who loved them first. That is why baptism occurs in the life of a worshiping body. That is why it is a public, deliberate act. It is a group of people gathered together to point their fingers at a child with deep love and to say, you child, belong. You child, are loved. You child, are special. Because at the same time, God points a finger right at us too, saying, I chose you. I chose to love you. I chose to save you. I chose you to have life so that you may experience all the fullness of my joy. As our children grow, and as they grow in faith, and as they grow surrounded by such a great group of finger pointers, they too will someday point fingers of their own. They will learn that when a friend's heart is heavy and burdened, to point a finger towards Jesus who helps carry the load. When one's mind is restless and confused with life, they will point a finger towards Jesus who says, come and I shall give you rest. When one struggles with doubt and trust, they will point a finger towards Jesus who says, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. When one feels lost and alone, they will point a finger to Jesus who says, You are mine. I have redeemed you and called you by name. You all know we live in a world of blame games, of finger pointing and backstabbing, a culture quick to accuse rather than take personal responsibility, an era where no one wants to admit their own mistakes, but instead we prefer to blame someone else. We point fingers, we place blame, we dismiss and we absolve. We'd rather make excuses instead of finding solutions. This is our reality and this is our truth. This is why we need John the Baptist-like people in our lives. People who cry out against the regimes of injustice, those who are willing to call out the powers that seek to hold others down, those who simply point a finger and say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We need these finger pointers in our lives who will remind us to focus on Jesus 
rather than the mess around us. So go ahead, point fingers. Jesus said it's okay. Amen.